from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Falling in love is the best feeling in the world. You see stars, you feel giddy, but sometimes that makes you do crazy things, and sometimes that means murder. Just because a story starts out with Once Upon a Time doesn't mean it ends happily ever after. Welcome to Crazy in Love, a production of KT Studios and iHeartRadio. Today's guests are producers Stephanie Lidecker and Jeff Shane. Episode 39, The Case of the Good Doctor, The Bad Employee, and The Very Toxic Relationship. As a girl in upstate New York, Mary Yoder was one of eight children. For most, it would be hard to stand out, but that's exactly what Mary did. Described as darling, upbeat, and fun, Mary was an avid gardener, belly dancer, and musician. In 1975, Mary was attending college when she met Bill. While Mary was outspoken and sociable, Bill was the opposite. He was introverted and shy, but Mary didn't care about those things. She saw a different side to Bill. To her, the young man was soulful and deep. The pair fell in love. Bill was also very smart. He became the valedictorian of his graduating class, and while he knew he wanted to be a chiropractor, Mary wasn't sure what she wanted to do with her life. But she was always helping Bill with his studies and realized she could follow in his footsteps. So together, Mary and Bill both got their PhDs. In 1978, the pair got married and were happier than ever. Bill felt like their relationship got better every day. Upon graduating, the couple opened their chiropractic clinic in Whitesboro, New York. Here's Stephanie. It wasn't just professionally that Bill and Mary found success. They also had three children, two girls and a boy. And the family, by all accounts, was very close. The clinic also became a bit of a family affair. The couple's son, Adam, worked at the clinic when he was a teenager. And then when he went off to college, his girlfriend, Katie, took over as an office manager. So that was the kind of people the Yoders were. They were very loving and very generous. And you hear about karma, and perhaps karma was working for them because the Yoders had a lot of success professionally and the clinic was doing very well. And as time went on, Mary became more of the face of the business working with patients while Bill handled more of the business side of things. And by all counts, Mary was super popular with the patients. They didn't just see her as a doctor, but also a friend. And she was described as inspiring positivity in everyone that she met. Mary and Bill also encouraged others with their healthy ways. They sort of believed that showing was the best example. And the couple lived a very holistic and spiritual life. At 60 years old, Mary was in the best shape of her life. And she credited her many vitamins and supplements she took for her healthy well-being. So by all accounts, the Yoder family were kind of living the dream. 
Bill and Mary worked together. Their son and his girlfriend also worked in the office and the business was thriving. They had success. They had lots of patients who really adored them. You know, you kind of hear about your second act and it seems like Mary Yoder was really living it. And they were just looking forward to what the future held. It seems as though she took very good care of herself and was very inspiring to anyone who realizes that they're at this second act in life and their best life is still ahead. By the summer of 2015, Mary and Bill were discussing their next chapter. They talked about retiring and traveling to Europe. In mid-July 2015, Mary dropped by her sister's house unannounced. It was something she never did. While it was a pleasant visit, her sister couldn't help but feel Mary was hiding something. But before she could press for answers, Mary left rather quickly. Was she in fact hiding something? One week later, on July 20th, 2015, Mary went to work as usual. She saw patients in the morning and seemed like her usual warm and kind self. But after lunch, there was a shift. Mary seemed off. Her eyes were red and she was quiet. As the afternoon progressed, her state worsened. She was vomiting and had diarrhea. Could it be a stomach bug or food poisoning? All she had eaten that day was a protein shake at lunch. By the next day, Mary was not better but worse. Bill rushed her to the hospital and she was admitted to the ICU. Her condition kept slipping and she went into cardiac arrest multiple times. Even though Mary was intubated, she was still conscious. At one point, she mouthed, I love you, to her sister. Mary would pull through, they expected. However, the family's hopes were dashed on July 22, 2015, when Mary's heart gave out. She died in the hospital. Her family was shocked. How could the healthy, full-of-life mother, wife, and sister be so alive one second and gone the next? Here's Jeff. It wasn't just Mary's family that was perplexed by all this, but also the doctors. Healthy 60-year-olds don't just die. And initial tests didn't really help them find anything that happened. And so the doctors continued to run more tests and brought in more specialists to figure out what was going on. And when they finally did the autopsy on Mary, it was revealed that her organs looked in incredibly bad shape, like someone who had just been through a round of chemotherapy. And this led the medical examiner to consider poisoning as a cause of death. And after the usual suspects like cyanide and arsenic were ruled out, the medical examiner figured out that Mary had been poisoned with something called colchicine. Colchicine is a drug that is used to treat gout, and Mary's body had lethal levels in it. There was just one issue. Mary did not have gout and had no reason to be taking colchicine. Despite this weird fact, even stranger was the idea that Bill didn't call the police. It would actually take three months for them to get involved when one of Mary's sisters called them to inform them of the situation. And like Mary's sister, detectives believed foul play was possible and started investigating that exact same day. Now, apparently the medical examiner's office should have notified the police about the possible poisoning. But there was some strange lapse in communication, and Mary's sisters would wonder, despite that mistake, why did Bill not contact police himself? Mary was a very beloved member of the community. She was active. She attended charity events frequently. 
there was nobody that seemingly would ever want to hurt her. So again, why would he not get police involved? And once police started taking a closer look, police looked immediately at the most obvious suspect, her husband, Bill. With Bill at the top of the police's list, they started looking at his behavior when Mary got sick and immediately after her death. And there was definitely some suspicious things around that. And what they found was that while Mary was dying in the hospital, Bill allegedly disappeared. According to Mary's sister, over a period of several hours when she was in the ICU, the hospital was urgently trying to reach him. And Bill was not answering phone calls or calling them back. And at one point when Mary was actually conscious, she herself tried to call Bill and he didn't even answer her phone calls or ever call her back. The hospital ended up having to send state troopers to his house to get him. And he didn't even come to the door when they knocked. They ended up having to pound it down basically till he answered. And it also should be noted that he's not hard of hearing. So it wasn't like he could be inside and not hear this ferocious knocking. And when the state troopers told him the situation that Mary was getting worse and he should get back to the hospital, he didn't show up for nearly an hour. It wasn't just that. Bill apparently had Mary's body cremated within days of her death without even informing her sisters or her mother. The funeral parlor director later told officials that Bill and his son Adam came in and that they were all business. It took just 30 minutes to plan what most people spend hours doing. I think it's interesting, Steph, because obviously when someone is murdered, the most obvious suspect is always the spouse. You know, you hear the line, the husband did it. And in this case, Bill is kind of looking like a potential suspect. I mean, the things he was doing when she's in the hospital and right after, you know, it's hard to say what's how someone acts when they're in this situation and how they should act. But I would think if you're that concerned about your wife, you're not disappearing for hours on end and you're not acting aloof at the crematorium. You obviously call the police when tragedy happens. Yeah, let's go back to that. Why do you think he wouldn't call the police when the doctors tell him that she has this gout medication and she doesn't have gout? While Mary's husband, Bill, was shaping up to be a worthy suspect, everything changed a month into the investigation. On November 23rd, 2015, police received an anonymous letter. The letter pointed detectives in a different direction. In fact, it pointed to Mary's 24-year-old son, Adam. In it, the letter said that Adam had bought a bottle of the colchicine off the internet and put the toxin in Mary's vitamins. It was this that killed her. The letter said the pill bottle could be found under the front passenger seat of Adam's Jeep. The note concluded by saying Adam killed his mother in hopes of financial gain. Remember, as we get into this, that Adam actually worked at the clinic before passing the job to his girlfriend, Katie. So if we look at this letter, it's pretty damning, but... Adam had no criminal history. Plus, police were wondering why would he want to hurt his mom? By all accounts, they were pretty close. However, Katie's parents told a different story. They said that when Adam and Katie were dating, there was always something off about him. He seemed detached and wouldn't make eye contact. Katie had grown tired of his weird behavior and broke up with him before Mary's death. She continued to work at the office and remained close with Mary, but the relationship with Adam allegedly was over. The police were wondering, could he have been so angry and depressed over this breakup that he decided to kill his mom? Or maybe he was just depressed about the breakup and then more depressed because of the death of his mom. You know, soon after, detectives called Adam in and they showed him this letter. 
And according to them, he seemed genuinely shocked. They asked to look in his Jeep and he immediately obliged and said yes. And sure enough, in the car, exactly where the letter said it would be was the pill bottle. Also in the car was a receipt for the drug with Adam's name and what appeared to be his email address, Mr. Adam Yoder, 1990 at gmail.com. And the billing and shipping address was also the clinic. This is very damning. And suddenly police are given this information and sure enough, it's paying off. Adam was really quick to deny all of this. He very quickly said that someone must have planted the pill bottle and the receipt. He also told the cops that he had an alibi for the day of Mary's death. He was around 300 miles away visiting one of his sisters. That seemed relevant, but to counter that, it was a poisoning death. And so in theory, he still could have murdered his mom and then drove off 300 miles away. It wasn't like he had to be there to administer the poison in the moment of her death. All of this combined, though, was not enough to charge him, and so the police had to let him go. The cops also started looking at some of the people in Adam's life, and they started with his cousin and his roommate, a man named David King. And David King said that after Mary died, Adam was super depressed. He started missing class and was drinking too much. And Adam apparently even told Dave that he felt suicidal. And again, was this pure grief? Or was this guilt showing its ugly face? It's interesting because on the one hand, this letter points the finger very clearly at Adam and kind of gives a play-by-play of exactly what he did and how to catch him for it. And if you're Adam and you did do it, why would you voluntarily drive to the police station, answer their questions, and then show them the car where you know the pill bottle is? That to me seems, for even the dumbest criminal, a very stupid behavior. Right, they're literally getting a roadmap to how this murder was committed. We're going to take a break. We'll be back in just a moment. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. There was another Yoder family insider that the police wanted to talk to. Adam's ex-girlfriend and Mary's former employee, 22-year-old Katie Conley. Katie was a beautiful brunette who loved horseback riding. At the office, she was well-liked and kept things in tip-top shape. Despite it not working out with Adam romantically, Katie remained close to his mother. Katie looked up to Mary and even considered following in her footsteps and becoming a chiropractor. When detectives met with Katie, they asked her point blank if she wrote the anonymous letter. She said yes. Here's some of her conversations with police. Are you okay? Yeah, I'm so sorry. I'm scared. What? I'm scared. I understand that. Well, he said he regretted it. You regretted it? You were in Adam's Jeep? Yeah. Right? He told you that he put the culture scene under your seat? 
Under his seat? Under my seat. Under your seat? He told you that? But I don't know. Can you get him to do this again? Do I think he could do it again? Like, would it surprise him? No. I know you can't protect me. We can't protect you. You can't protect me. We'll protect you from what, Adam? Yeah. If you're saying Adam's responsible, why would Adam come after you? Why? Yes. Because if he knows that I, like, if he knows that I came to you. When you hear that, Katie, you can hear the fear in her voice. She seems really afraid of her ex, Adam. Also in the interview, she told detectives that Adam actually threatened to frame her for the murder if she told on him. You can literally hear the fear in her voice. She did make some strange comments, though. Have a listen to this. Guys also don't use poison, but they say it's a lady's weapon. They say it's a lady's weapon? What she says is, they always say poison is a, a lady's weapon. Like, no men kill someone with poison. So the cops now had three suspects, Bill, Adam, and Katie. The police got warrants to look at all three of their phones and computers, and what they found was pretty interesting. Remember that email on the receipt in Adam's car, Mr. Adam Yoder, 1990 at gmail.com? Well, it turned out that despite it very much looking like Adam's email, he never logged into it from his computer or his phone. But guess who had? His ex-girlfriend, Katie. She had logged into that email from both her home and office computers. The cops also found that Katie had searched for Colchicine on her phone. This all looked pretty bad for her, but the big question is why would she want to harm Mary? At this point, detectives need to know more, and they immediately bring her back and press her for information. And in an interrogation that would last for six hours, Katie did a lot of talking. You've done a lot of work, okay? And we know that your, your phone is used quite a lot for items in this case, okay? Mm -hmm. You're the one that purchased the cultures. No. Help me. I didn't tell I can... But you're never going to believe me. Nobody else will believe you. You lied to me. I didn't mean to lie to you. But you did. That's the only thing we need at this point is why. You need to tell me whether you wanted to hurt her or did you want her to get sick or, or what. We need to know. I wouldn't try to hurt her. Okay. I wouldn't hurt her. You wouldn't hurt Mary? No. <laughs> My life is over. Who told to do this, Katie? Was it Adam? It's a pretty astounding interrogation. Over those six hours, she never once admits to anything and she really holds her ground that she had nothing to do with this murder. And she's obviously emotional, but is adamant that she did not harm her boss and friend, Mary. Four months after her interrogation, Katie was charged with first degree murder in June of 2016. Surprisingly, three of Mary's sisters sat behind Katie in court. They were adamant that Katie was innocent and had been framed by Mary's husband, Bill. As the trial started, the prosecutor wanted to make it clear that Bill was a grieving husband and not a murder suspect. Here's a portion of Bill on the stand in court. So immediately after your wife passed away, what did you do? I remember walking out of the, the hospital door into the sunlight and the next memory I have after that was I was sitting on my bed in the dark, just crying and crying. It hurt so much. 
Following Bill's tearful testimony, the prosecutor laid out a very specific case against Katie. They actually had a sales representative from the company that the poison was bought from. And she said that she did speak to somebody that sounded like Katie who purchased the colchicine. The prosecution also pointed to the fact that Katie had admitted to buying a prepaid credit card to purchase the colchicine. Plus, an expert testified that Adam's DNA wasn't even on the pill bottle, which would be pretty impossible. And that, get this, Katie's, of course, was. But again, what was the motive? Well, Steph, the prosecution argued that Katie killed Mary in a bid to win Adam back. And seemingly for a while, it worked. Right when Mary died, Adam was grieving, as we know, and he immediately turned to Katie. They started to hook up again, but eventually he grew tired of her and broke up with her for good. According to the prosecution, it was at this point that Katie was so enraged that she decided to frame Adam as some sort of sick revenge. Listen to the prosecution spell it all out. Let's stop here for another break. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. So the defense countered all this with the fact that Katie had no motive. The person they say did have a motive was Mary's husband, Bill. It turned out that Bill had started dating one of Mary's estranged sisters, Kathy. Kathy testified at the trial that the relationship didn't start until September, two months after Mary died. But her neighbor testified that she had seen Kathy and Bill kissing two weeks before Mary's death. Yeah, the defense also pointed to the fact that Bill never went to the police about Mary's death, which at the bare minimum was odd. Katie's defense also argued that Bill had relied on Mary for money for years. She was the better doctor after all. But before Mary's death, Bill had inherited $400,000 from his father's estate. So the money really wasn't needed from Mary any longer. And he allegedly said that the inheritance was only enough for one person, himself. Katie's lawyers also pointed out that Bill had access to Katie's work computer and easily could have framed her. As to why the DNA was on the pill bottle, she was the office manager. She handled everything in the office. It should also be noted that because Bill testified for the grand jury, he had full immunity from prosecution for life, meaning he could never be charged for the death of his wife. So all this finger pointing that Katie's lawyers were doing was not in the hopes of getting charges brought against him, but really just to take the heat off of Katie. So back in the courtroom, the defense brought up the phone searches, specifically the one for Colchicine. What's interesting, though, is no one knew when Katie Googled it. So her lawyers said that it could have been after Mary's death when she was trying to research what happened to her beloved boss. As the defense closed their arguments, there was one question they couldn't answer. And that was, if Katie hadn't done it, why did she write that letter implicating Adam? Because, ladies and gentlemen, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. 
Vengeance, thy name is Caitlin Conley. After four days of deliberation, the jury was deadlocked. A mistrial was declared in May of 2017. The district attorney wasted no time filing new charges, and a second trial started October the same year. At the second trial, the prosecution laid out basically the exact same case. The defense, however, took a much different approach. Instead of pointing the finger at Bill, they were now saying that Mary's son Adam was the killer. They described Adam as an unstable hacker capable of getting into Katie's computer, either remotely or in person. His cousin and former roommate, David King, testified for the defense saying that Adam was a liar. David said that Adam had access to both the office and Katie's personal computer and easily could have ordered the poison himself. The defense also was now bringing up rape allegations Katie had brought against Adam a year before Mary's death. Adam had denied all of that and the allegations were eventually dropped, but perhaps the fear she had shown during her interrogation was real. You can't protect me. You can't protect you from what, Adam? Yeah. If you're saying Adam's responsible, why would Adam come after you? Why? Yes. Because if he knows that I, like, if he knows that I came to you. This time, the defense closed by saying that Katie loved Mary and would never harm her. On the stand, Adam denies absolutely everything. And like his father, he too had full immunity. However, the prosecution got another smoking gun. Right before the second trial, they got a backup of Katie's phone and discovered that at some point, she had also Googled other poisons, including arsenic and cyanide. After hearing all of the evidence and testimony, the judge actually allowed the jury to not only consider the original charge of second-degree murder, but also a lesser charge of manslaughter, meaning that Katie only meant to harm Mary, not kill her. Despite this new option, it looked like history might be repeating itself as by day two of deliberations, the jury was completely deadlocked. When they told the judge this, he urged them to keep trying, and just two hours later, they came back with a verdict. In November 2017, Katie Connolly was found not guilty of second-degree murder, but guilty of first-degree manslaughter. Katie was sentenced to 23 years in prison. Despite the evidence against her, Mary's sisters never stopped believing in Katie's innocence. To this day, they help her fight to appeal the conviction. As we look back on this case, one thing sticks out. In a rather now prophetic Facebook post, Katie wrote just one day after Mary died, quote, if love could have saved you, you would have lived forever. Shameless plug. If you're enjoying Crazy in Love, leave us a review. And listen to season three of our hit series, The Piketon Massacre. New episodes air every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at KT underscore studios. Crazy in Love is produced by Stephanie Lidecker, Jeff Shane, Chris Graves, and me, Courtney Armstrong. Editing and sound design by Jeff Twa. Crazy in Love is a production of iHeartRadio and KT Studios. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Stay safe, lovers. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. 
Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts.